pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredu rou pian. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hola, everyone. That's a happy introduction. Welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David G. Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And if this is your first time listening, let me explain to you why my podcast has this amazing name. I'm originally from Portugal, and I've been living in Washington, D.C. for the last nine years. And the name of the podcast refers to two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. I'll be asking my guests if they've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes. Every episode, I'll have a guest and we'll talk about everything related to food, not necessarily ingredients or dishes, but how through food we can help communities, the success of small business owners, the fascinating stories that we remember growing up with our families sitting around the table, and even which ingredients are overrated and underrated and much more. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on all the platforms you have access to. Follow me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes and follow the Facebook page Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash david martins. I hope you have an amazing time listening to every episode. And don't forget I'm Portuguese, so if something doesn't sound exactly right, just pretend that you understand. Eight years ago, my guest appeared on MasterChef. Her audition moved me and millions of people around the world. She showed us that passion and persistence can overcome any adversity. Despite her being legally blind, she ended up winning the competition, with Gordon Ramsay praising her amazing palate and her food. Since winning the third season of MasterChef, she wrote a best-selling cookbook, Recipes from My Home Kitchen. She served as a judge on MasterChef Vietnam, hosted a Canadian TV show for cooks with visual disabilities, and worked with the United States government as a culinary envoy to the Middle East and Eastern Europe. She became the first chef honored with the Helen Keller Personal Achievement Award from the American Foundation for the Blind. In 2018, she opened a Vietnamese gastropub in Houston, Texas, called The Blind Goat. According to her, she complains a lot. So let's hope she will not find a reason to do so after this interview. Christine <laughs> Ha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Hanging in there. Not the easiest time for anybody right That's now, true. but yeah, there are things definitely to complain about, but there are a lot of <laughs> things still to be grateful for as well. So two important questions that I ask all my guests. Have you ever been to Portugal? I have not, but it is on my bucket list because I want to go to Lisbon and I want to try the egg tarts that originated from there. So famous in yeah, the, uh, Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. The <laughs> yes. Do you know any Portuguese words? No, actually, I do not. I mean, I've been learning Spanish in school since I was young, but I don't really know any Portuguese. It's okay. No, it's the common answer from everybody, so it's fine. Uh, <laughs> so you, do you still complain a lot? And what are your biggest pet peeves? It depends on who you ask. If you ask my husband, yes, I complain a lot. If you ask other people, like maybe my staff, I do not complain that much. I don't think, I don't know. My pet peeve, I would say... Funny enough, something that I was just telling my husband that I find is a pet peeve is when we get like soliciting emails for our business, like say people are trying to sell us a product and I've never met them before and they start off the email with, hey, buddy, (laughs) I think that's my pet peeve because I'm like, I'm not your buddy. You don't know me. You need to use my name or even something more generic than that is okay. But, you know, it's not it shouldn't be that informal in my No, a buddy's a little, yeah, that's too much. Uh, So one of your inspirations 
is your mom, right? Uh, yes. When it comes to cooking, have you mastered her Vietnamese beef noodle soup or not yet? <sighs> I don't think I have. And I don't know if I ever will. I think it's a hard process because it's not like something that you can easily whip up on a daily basis. It's time consuming. It's, you know, it's long. It takes a long time on the stove and I, you know, I don't have that much time to do that. I mean, yes, oftentimes it is, you set it and you kind of forget it and leave the stove, but it's something that I would want to concentrate on. And I haven't had the luxury to cook it often enough to feel like I've mastered it. It's pretty good, but it's, I don't think it's nearly as good as hers. was. So where your passion comes from? I think my passion comes from the part of my personality that loves to show others how I care for them and to serve others. I think that's kind of vital when you're in the hospitality business. It is about serving others. For me, feeding other people foods I create uh, really stems, I find joy in that. So, and I think like food is so universal and it's something that everybody can relate to in this world. And I find that that's what is amazing about food, how it's able to bring people from different walks of life together. What was your motivation and decision to try out for MasterChef? Well, it was really my husband's motivating me. I think he's a Gordon Ramsay fan. And at the time, I barely heard of Gordon Ramsay, even though like, you know, I know the name and I kind of knew he was like a famous British chef. And that was about it. My husband watched more Gordon Ramsay on television than I did. And then he you know, we found out that auditions were coming to Austin, which is near, not too far from Houston. And my friends and my husband encouraged me because they said that my story is interesting, that I'm able to cook well, so why not try out? So that's kind of how it led to that. And I went to the auditions just thinking it would be an interesting life experience, not expecting to get as far as I did. What did you learn and what were the biggest takeaways on being on MasterChef? I definitely learned, obviously, some cooking techniques. You know, I think before that time, I'd never used a pressure cooker in my life. So I learned different cooking techniques. But I think a bigger life lesson that I learned when I was on the show was to trust my own instincts more with food and just with things that I create. I think a lot of our abilities to do certain things, and I think especially being an Asian woman coming from that background, I think there's, you know, a lot of us feel what we call imposter syndrome. And we're not super confident in our achievements or our abilities to with certain skills. And I think what I learned on that show through that competition was to really trust my instincts. If I felt like something I cooked tasted good, then that's the best thing I can do to serve the judges that because I realize these judges have eaten some of the best foods in the world. And there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do as a home cook that can top everything they've had before. Mm -hmm. So all I can do is be humble serve myself on a plate and be proud of what I created. And if I believed in my dish and thought it was good and I would have wanted to eat it myself, then, then that's, I think, the way to impress the judges as well. Yeah. So it's a very visual industry, right? Hospitality. What made you think that despite losing your eyesight, you could excel in it? I don't know. I think it's because I used to have vision. So I mm -hmm. have memories of how colors look and how they contrast it on a plate. I understand, you know, by feeling with my fingers, the different textures of different foods. And I depended a lot on my memory. And then I would visualize everything in my head before I played it. And then I would set about to trying to recreate what I visualized in my head with my fingers. So I never really felt like it was going to be my forte. But apparently, I guess on the show, my plating skills were talked about. And I think it's, I'm a firm believer in less is more and just about organic plating and just using utilizing white space on a plate so that your food and the colors on your food pop 
do you think because you lost your sight a little, I mean, later in life, let's put it like that, you weren't born blind. Do you think it would be a different, Christine, if you were trying to do all of that without having the memory of colors and all of that? I do think so. I think if I still had my vision, I think that I would concentrate a lot more on what other people were doing and then trying to, I think I would psych myself up a lot and, and be even more competitive. And, and when I see what other people were doing to their plates or what they were cooking, but I think because I couldn't see, I could only concentrate on what I was doing at my own station. And in the end that became my advantage is that I wasn't so caught up and concerned with what other people were cooking, but I was just wholly involved in the situation of my own cooking and my own plate. So in 2018, you decided to open the Blind Goat, right, in Houston, Texas. Why did you decide it and what's the concept of the restaurant? I felt like the right time. Uh, we actually opened last year, so it was 2019. 19, so I'm we sorry. Just okay. hit, we just hit our one-year anniversary. And before that, I've always wanted to open a small place, even before going on MasterChef. Just even after winning, though, nothing really felt like the right time or the right place. I think... Coming out of a competition, having won, yes, maybe I was a great home cook, but that didn't mean that I could necessarily open up a restaurant and run a commercial kitchen. I know that that takes a whole different caliber and mindset and set of skills. And of course, like I have to acknowledge that I do have, you know, a vision impairment. It's not going to be easy running a commercial kitchen and a full staff in that situation. So it couldn't really justify the idea of putting so much money into building a brick and mortar and not being sure of what I was doing because it would have been my first time. So finally, in uh, 2018, we did find a space and we were invited to open up as one small station inside a food hall in Houston. And so that, you know, I felt like that opportunity was a good one because it would give me the experience. I could start small and just run a very small kitchen, hire a team that can run the restaurant on a daily basis. And then I would work with them to do the menu and the whole feel and atmosphere of the place. And so, you know, we finally opened in July of 2019 and it's been a very humbling and a good learning experience, but that's exactly what I expected. I knew it would be a very big challenge. I mean, my life's been full of challenges. So I knew that this one would definitely be up there in terms of hardship. And of course, like now we're dealing with the pandemic. So that's a whole other <laughs> issue as well. Yeah. But you know, I would describe the Blind Goat as a Vietnamese gastropub. I want it to be a place where everybody feels welcome, regardless of where they've come from in life. And we just serve like a lot of Vietnamese flavors with my personal flair on it being in a California born, you know, Vietnamese American that was raised in Texas. Very well. Do you cook a lot at home? I do cook a lot at home, especially lately now that we've been uh, staying at home quite a bit. I feel like all I look forward to now is just kind of simple home cooking and just learning about new seasonal ingredients that I've maybe never done before, trying out new dishes, doing some R&D for the Blind Goat, and then for my second restaurant that's supposed to open soon in Houston as well called Xinjiao. So yeah, I've probably been cooking multiple times a week at home for just myself and my husband. One of the important things in your kitchen is technology. Almost works like mm -hmm. yeah, as your sous chef, right? Can mm -hmm. you describe some of those examples? Yeah, I depend a lot on a smart home device. So I use it to set timers. So I can set multiple timers if I'm running the oven and then something in a pressure cooker at the same time. We recently got a smart microwave. So we've been using this microwave oven for three that has been broken for three years. So I would have to manually <laughs> open the microwave door and rotate my food like 90 degrees every like 30 seconds or a minute. 
Yeah. And so we finally decided to spend the money and get a new microwave and we found a smart microwave. So now I can use it with my smartphone and then I can also use it with the smart home device and then tell it to, you know, set the microwave for 60 seconds or at high power or something. So I use a lot of these technologies. I use my phone a lot. That's where I have like my whole list of everything that's in my pantry and in my fridge, because, you know, if I open my fridge, I don't necessarily know what's in there, but I can use my phone to read through the list because I keep a very detailed pantry list running. So I know everything that's in my kitchen. So I know what meals I can create, with what I've already have. And then, yeah, just a lot of smart home devices that help me also convert measurements, for example, like from standard to metric or whatnot. So I use all of these things in my kitchen. Is it important for you? I'm not sure if this is a, a weird question, but is it important for you to feel and be as independent as you can be? And the technology comes into that also, right? It helps you a lot to be, do you feel just because you are, you know, visually impaired, do you think for you, it's almost a need that, okay, I don't need, I want to be as, as independent as I can? Uh, yeah, I think that's a very valid point. I think when I lost my vision, what I missed the most was my independence. So when people ask specifically, what did you miss? I said, I miss driving by myself to the grocery store and doing my own grocery shopping. I miss running my own errands, not having to depend on someone else to drive me or to help me pick out certain food items from the store or the market. And so I feel like when you lose your vision, and especially for someone like me who grew up very independent, I was, I grew up as an only child, you know, I lost my mother when I was young. So I felt like I had to grow up very fast and depend only on myself. So when that sort of independence was stripped from me, because I'd lost my vision, I tried as hard as I can to gain back as much independence as I could. And I think a hard lesson I did learn in life was that it's actually okay to ask for help and to depend on other people. And I, you know, for a long time, I felt like I was a burden on other people. But what I've learned is that there are so many people out there that are willing to help and want to help. And so you should you know, definitely utilize that when you need it. And I think that was a hard lesson for me to learn. But once I was okay with that and learned to ask for and accept other people's help, life became much easier. And mm -hmm. I think it was rewarding for other people as well to be, to feel like they were able to help me and they could see that, you know, I was so thankful and grateful for people's generosity. Yeah. One of my very first internship, actually. So I did my whole culinary school in Portugal and I went to the South of Portugal to like this beach resorts and there was this man, he was blind for the last 25 years or so. And he was on the cold station, just like preparing things. His whole thing was cutting. And I mean, it was just impressive. I remember being very, 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 very young because first of all, the speed he could work. Uh, uh -huh. And he will actually ask all the interns to be next to him. Okay, let's do a competition. How fast can you like peel and chop 10 onions? Uh -huh. And he was, I mean, he was really ridiculous. He was extremely, extremely fast. And I remember talking with him a little bit and I was always, he said his buddy to take him to the locker room and to take him to the cafeteria and bring him back up. And he was super independent. I remember him telling me as, uh, you know, I want to feel as I was 30 years ago. And he did, he cleaned his station. He knew where everything was, but was so impressed with his preparation and the whole hotel rely on him because he could literally, you know, peel and chop five bags of onions in an hour where everybody was like still in midnight yeah. and we were still working on it. And that story was always fascinating. He was amazing. He was, he really didn't want a whole lot of people to help him. Of course, when yeah. he, he had to, he will ask, but he was super, super independent, a very nice guy. And I always have that memory with me, but, um, yeah. but it was, yeah. So you served as a culinary envoy to the Middle East and Eastern Europe. What did that entail? 
I went over there and met with a lot of people there, whether it was women entrepreneurs or uh, young college students. And I shared with them what it was like to cook in America. So whether it was like Vietnamese food or Southern food, because I'm from the South in the U.S. And then I learned from them as well and learned about their culture and their foods. We shared meals together. I did a lot of lectures. I did cooking classes. I did things with the government over there as well. And, you know, it was just about kind of promoting, uh, I guess, American culture through something that is relatable like food. And then as well, learning about the culture over there in the country I was visiting and then trying to bridge, I guess, any sort of differences and help them push their agenda, whether it's to get women to be, you know, do startup businesses or people with physical disabilities to learn to cook. It was just various agendas and just kind of helping to promote that. Do you have, did you derive specific satisfaction from teaching other visually impaired chefs? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think because I am a visual impaired myself, I know exactly what the needs are of someone who's vision impaired in the kitchen. Like, you know, something a lot of sighted people forget is that don't move anything at their station without letting them know. And it's okay to take the cook's hand or the visually impaired person's hand and put it, move it around to show them where everything is so they can orient themselves. So, you know, it is interesting sometimes to get into a kitchen with a lot of other visually impaired students and cooks because we're all sometimes feeling like it's very chaotic, but I think there's a beauty and fun to that sort of chaos. Yeah. Do you feel like you've made a difference in open up your profession to the visually impaired? I hope so. I mean, I think like this whole thing, yes, it started with MasterChef, but I think it was, it's a bigger platform that I've been given is to, you know, advocate for the ability for people with various disabilities to be able to work in the kitchen or to do great things or to achieve whatever it is that they, they dream of with vocation. Yeah. What was your first memory of taste? Oh, my first memory of taste. Growing up, I was actually very picky with food. I didn't really enjoy eating. I mean, something, a funny story that not a lot of people know, actually, something I really did like, though, growing up is banana flavored baby food with tapioca in it. (laughs) And I remember that being my favorite baby food flavor. And as an adult, I still remember in my early 20s, like right out of college, sometimes I would crave that flavor and I didn't know how to make like a pudding or anything like that, because I was just starting to learn to cook at that time. So I would still go to the store and buy the jars of baby food that was banana flavor with tapioca. (laughs) And then I would always like kind of pretend to make conversation like, oh, yeah, so I'm buying this for my niece or my nephew. So that like people in line or the I don't know, I just felt like embarrassed, like people knew that I was buying it for myself. And I would try to make it sound like I was buying it for another child. But I would say that's one of my earliest memories of flavor was bananas with tapioca in the form I, of baby food. I'm so glad that you said you haven't shared this story with a lot of people. Actually, no, my, I don't think yeah, one of my favorite things this is actually true. One of when I, I teach cooking classes, when I tell my students, they all look at me a little weird because especially during the winter, my breakfast, normally what I eat is baby food, uh, this baby food, specific baby food in Portugal that you just add hot water or milk. I can uh-huh. really not describe. People say it's bland. Some people say it's cream of wheat. It's none of that. It, uh-huh. And it's it's super thick. You can do it very runny or thick. You can use uh-huh. it as to plaster walls because it gets so, so thick. And that's uh-huh. my that's my breakfast. Uh, and you give that to babies basically to bulk them up a little bit. 
Uh-huh. I don't need more bulking up, but I love it. So see, me and you, we shared that. Yes, some baby food <laughs> yeah, is very good. Yes, it's a baby food memory. <laughs> it's a thing. What's the most underrated ingredient for you? Oh, most underrated ingredient. Oh, man, that is a hard one. I don't know. What's yours? Give me an idea. Maybe it'll oh, spark um, Celery root. Ah, what do you use it in? Raw salads, you know, deep fried puree. I think you can make, it's funny because I do not like the celery celery uh-huh. parts but uh-huh. i think the root it's not a whole lot of people know and you really can do three four things that it's out of someone's radar let's put you know people don't uh-huh. expect uh-huh. to use that so celery root will be for me yeah i mean for me i feel like it's kind of a, a cheating answer because i usually answer this but i would say like fish sauce I mm-hmm. think was definitely one because not a lot of people, unless you are probably Southeast Asian, would you use it in everything you cook? But I use it in even a lot of Western dishes. Like if I'm making a bolognese sauce or a Texas chili or some kind of a stew, I'll add a little bit of Vietnamese fish sauce and it does add some kind of umami to it. You know, so I would say to most people that would be my underrated answer. But I feel like it's kind of cheating because I tend to say that. So I was trying to think of something else. That count. Um, that count. I mean, you already yeah, told your but, story about the baby food, so that one counts. Yes. Okay. Okay. To and counterbalance. Yes. And overrated ingredients. Overrated ingredients. That's funny that you said celery because I tend to not like celery either, except for in certain applications. Okay. I know. I think cooked salmon is overrated. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Not a fan. I love it raw. I like it smoked, but usually I think I think it's a, just a bad memory of like eating a lot of overcooked salmon in mm-hmm. my life. Yep. And so I think it's just that memory is always stuck in my head. So I do not like cooked salmon. The best breakfast you can have. Best breakfast. I coffee, think lately coffee. I would just, <laughs> just I really would just want a uh, really flaky, good, buttery croissant. Yep. The strangest combination that some people might do it that you just cannot accept. Like two, three ingredients, put it together that it's a no, no for you. Peanut butter and banana sandwiches. Yeah, that's the thing I heard. Yes, I never tried. Have you ever tried? Uh, yeah. So I also have a bad memory about that. It was when I was in young in grade school, my next door neighbor, her mom made us uh, while we were playing for snack time, peanut butter and banana sandwiches. I'd never had it before, but I ate it because I was hungry. And then I don't know, I just, I couldn't handle it. And I ended up vomiting and I felt really bad, but I think ever since then it just scarred me. So I can't do it. And you never went back to her house to play, right? You were just like, that's it. <laughs> never again. Yeah, let's, I invited her over. So she could yeah, let's meet at the park. <laughs> yes. So the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. This is two Portuguese phrases. So turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience. And breaking dishes means someone that exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Breaking more dishes. That's a good answer. So to wrap up here, we go to the part that I call sell your fish. That's also the Portuguese phrase that means to talk about yourself, where people can find you, what's next for you. Just tell a little bit about that. Yeah. So we're continuing to operate the blind goat. We've pivoted to doing a lot of takeout. It's definitely been a challenge, but we're trying to reach a more global audience as well. So we've started something called the goat club there where People from all over can sign up. And if you live in Houston once a month, your membership will get you a meal that you can pick up. And whether, you know, whether it's uh, something that you can cook at home with instructions or a ready to eat meal. And if you don't live in Houston, then you can join the supporter tier. And then that every month gets you some exclusive content. And all of these tiers include 
a once a month like live stream with me, whether I'm doing a cooking class or we're sitting down to eat, it could be a Q&A. So it's an interactive live stream. So we started that at the Blind Goat. And then uh, very soon, we're going through permitting right now with the city, but we're planning to open up my second restaurant called Sin Jiao, which means hello or welcome in Vietnamese. And that's another modern Vietnamese restaurant that we're doing in Houston. So that's on the horizon. And then I guess my other project is I am the subject of a documentary about my life. Um, It's not titled yet, but it's been hard to kind of film during this pandemic because we have to kind of follow safety protocol with when the director is here filming. And a lot of it, I've had to do my own filming with my husband. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there is a documentary that's kind of showing how someone like me as a blind woman has, you know, conquered MasterChef, opened a restaurant, about to open a second restaurant, and then dealing with the pandemic. Perfect. Well, Christine, thank you very much for coming. Yeah, uh, thank you, Jeff. You can go eat some banana, uh, you know, baby <laughs> foods now. I haven't had that in a long time, but now you might have inspired me to See? take on this challenge of trying to figure out how to make it from scratch myself. <laughs> and it was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much. Same. Thank you very much. Thank you. In a previous episode, I mentioned a new feature on the podcast called the Embassy Chef's Corner, where I'll give you a few simple but completely worth it cooking tips. This Embassy Chef's Corner will be all about cold soups. Why? Because it's 9 million degrees outside in Washington, D.C. in August. Two very simple recipes. I'll not give you specific amounts, so just follow your heart, your brain, and something else. All these soups, I recommend to put everything in a blender. The smooth consistency is much better, in my opinion, and you can also garnish with something on top. The first soup. Gaspacho. Easy, delicious, and fresh. Six tomatoes, no seeds. Half a cucumber, no seeds. Half a red onion, one red pepper, two cloves of garlic, a handful of stale bread with no crust, a good dollop of olive oil, a few tablespoons of vinegar, any any vinegar will work, salt and pepper, add some water at a time until the desired consistency, and gazpacho is done. If you don't blend the gazpacho and just chop everything, actually you make a Portuguese gazpacho. A blended gazpacho, it's a Spanish gazpacho. The second soup, cold almond soup. Two handful of peeled blanched almonds, half a cucumber, one handful of green grapes, a few tablespoons of Greek yogurt, a handful of stale bread with no crust, salt and pepper, a few tablespoons of vinegar, a good dollop of olive oil, and that's it. Both soups you can storage in your freezer for about two months. If you have any other questions, comments, suggestions, you can find me on Instagram at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes. On the Facebook page, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes, you can email me at info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. And if you want to support these outstanding podcasts, you can go to anchor.fm slash david-martins. See you next time. Adios.